Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Washington and its allies are warning that Russia is on the verge of invading Ukraine, perhaps bucking conventional wisdom that Moscow would wait until the end of the Beijing Olympics before it moves. The prospect of war in Central Europe has driven investors toward American and European defense stocks on the expectation that defense spending would rise, with Northrop Grumman alone gaining nearly 5% in trading. Munitions makers like Rheinmetall and Saab both saw gains. Meanwhile, U.S. inflation has set a new 40-year high, 7.5%, as anti-COVID mandate demonstrations in Canada complicate an already complicated supply chain for U.S. manufacturers, from automobiles to agriculture to aviation. Several more leading U.S. companies reported earnings as France's Dassault landed another order for its Rafale jets in Indonesia. Commercial aviation continues to rebound as U.S. COVID deaths now stand at about 920,000 and a worldwide total of some 5.8 million Uh, dead since the start of the pandemic. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C., and occasionally in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Everybody, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Vago. It wouldn't be a weekend without it. It's always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks for having us. It's great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, thank you all uh, for always making time for us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and before we get started on this Super Bowl Sunday, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent conference and trade show. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things uh, space. Ron, uh, start us off as you always do, right? Inflation was very bad, but tensions in Ukraine, while terrible, means uh, the consensus at about 90% now is that defense spending everywhere is going to go up. Walk us through the week and how the group performed and why. Yeah, as you highlighted, there's a, a, a lot of you know crosswinds and turbulence going on in the market. Um, <clears throat> the inflation, the CPI came in at you know 7.5%, which was, uh, I think, well above what a lot of folks were looking for. I think there was an expectation you'd start to see it moderate already, um, and it's it's continuing to um, to rise. Now, we'll see where it, where it peaks out. Uh, my guess is around 9%, but I'm not the economist at Bank of America, so my view is uh, junior varsity at best. Uh, but inflation is still kind of an issue out there. We saw interest rates because of that peak up above two percent. Uh, you know, since we've been doing the podcast, they started uh, well, well low of that. Uh, they peaked up above two percent, uh, and then on Friday uh, midday, late in the day, uh, news came out that there could be you know an impending um, kinetic attack uh, in the Ukraine by the Russians. The market then promptly sold off. Uh, except for the defense group. If you look at the broader market for the week, the S&P was down uh, almost 2% uh, on the week. Northrop was up, interestingly enough, uh, exactly 8%. Uh, 
Um, Boeing had a very good week, but then you know kind of gave a lot of it back at the end of the week. It was up about two and a half percent. Raytheon Technologies was up about two and a half percent. L3 Harris was up about five percent, as was Lockheed, and most of the gains in defense really did happen on Friday. Um, that being as it said, probably the you know the the one of the bigger stories that sort of flew under the radar uh, was uh, Astrospace. They're one of the the emerging launch companies. Uh, they had a mission that they were putting some satellites in orbit for. Uh, NASA, that mission failed, and uh, their stock was down almost 40% on the week. Uh, most of that happened right after the failure. Um, so there was you know, a lot of volatility. Uh, and in, if you look at any sort of the market pundits today, it's, you know, what's the Fed going to do? And then you saw this you know, interesting reaction, or not even interesting, not that unexpected reaction, as soon as there was uh, the sense that, uh-oh, uh, something tense might be happening in Eastern Europe. You actually saw yields come down a little bit as people were had this flight to safety. So you're having this flight to safety maybe at a time where it's working against the Fed. Um, so you're getting an, an interesting dynamic here where you have a force pulling down interest rates when the Fed uh, would you know, ideally like interest rates to, to drift up. Uh, and then the broader date, debate becomes now, you know, how much is the Fed going to raise over what time period? You know, some people are thinking the Fed could raise by, you know, half, uh, half a basis point, maybe one full, you know, basis point or, you know, one, you know, uh, 20, excuse me, 50 basis points versus 25 basis points or 100 basis points, one full per- percentage point. Um, so you have all kinds of, you know, crosswinds going on in the market around uh, what the Fed's going to do. And I think if you look at other markets in the world, and, and, and Sash can talk to this, you're seeing, you know, interest rates rise, you know, all over the world. Um, uh, and, you know, you, we might even get into a situation if it hasn't happened already. And some of the markets where interest rates have been uh, negative, not just real, in nominal terms, negative, um, that they'll start picking up into positive territory. Uh, well, so and I, the Ger- right, the German Bund being a good example of that, right? Yeah, I, you know, honestly, I, I just haven't seen the last print on that, but it was trending that direction. Yep, Exactly. Um, Sash, uh, take it away, right? You're closer to uh, the threat you are. Give us your take uh, on what you thought the most interesting thing in European and Asian uh, markets were over the past week that you thought were particularly interesting, right? Uh, uh, We'll we'll get to earnings uh, in a minute, right? But Rheinmetall pre-announced, Saab uh, has been been doing pretty well, right? Anybody in the munitions game, walk, walk us through what you thought were the key indicators. Well, yeah, I, I mean, look, I mean, Saab announced, it's actually the only stock that in, in Europe uh, that, that, that announced last week. Um, and the results were fine. Uh, you know, the results were good. Um, two points came out uh, of Saab, which were interesting. I mean, one is that they are clearly still, still smarting from the, the loss of the Finnish fighter competition. We don't think they should be. Uh, you know, our view is that at a time when tensions in Europe have seldom been higher, certainly not in my professional lifetime, it makes sense for the Finns to buy, you know, the most U.S. security that they can. And the way that they were going to do that was going to be by buying the F-35. And however good Saab's offer of Gripen was to Finland, and it was probably very good, nothing trumps having Uncle Sam on your side for the Finns. Um, but, you know, broader issue, which was really interesting, was, and people tend to forget this, you know, Saab is actually a multi-divisional business. Yes, Gripen is its, its combat aircraft, but it has a dynamics business, which is missiles and anti-armor weapons. It has a surveillance business, which is a really top-rate uh, radar company, and it builds uh, submarines and naval systems as well. And just to pick on their dynamics business for a second, they said very, very clearly, you know, nations in Europe, but actually also, you know, the, the US is, uh, is, is part of this, are assessing 
reassessing their uh, defence needs, reassessing what uh, what they have and whether that is adequate at the moment. And when they look at uh, munitions, and in some case anti-armour weapons, nobody has got enough. And you know what they're doing? They're all picking up the phone and dialing a Swedish uh, number to say, can you give us more missiles? Can you give us more rounds for Carl Gustav? And that's a fantastic business to be in. And this was then echoed slightly indirectly by Rheinmetall, who pre-announced positively. Not often that happens in my experience. Uh, but Rheinmetall clearly had a good year last year. Um, they didn't announce their full year results until feels like mid, mid-March, which is forever away. But they, you know, really... Uh, margins were probably 100 basis points ahead of what they should have been. All of that came through in the fourth quarter. Cash flow was fantastic. Again, that was a fourth quarter issue. And our bet is that this is uh, nations who want munitions of almost any any sort. But where does Rheinmetall make their money? They make their money in the big, heavy stuff that nobody else can do well. 120 millimeter smoothbore tank rounds. They own that market. Um, 155 millimeter artillery artillery you know stalin's god of war but it's made 155 millimeter in germany and in south africa which they own and that is the you know the war winner for european uh, armed forces and clearly you know the phone hasn't stopped ringing so what we're seeing here is the rearmament play and the urgent rearmament play really occurring Richard, sort of give us a flavor on the commercial side of things, right? I mean, what the air travel picture looks like, it, it is uh, improving. Uh, Nick Cunningham is uh, uh, Sasha's partner over there at Agency Partners and uh, put together kind of a piece that Chinese traffic is actually picking up. And so that drove some of it. Obviously, it's a, it's a New Year season. And despite lockdowns, it's a giant country and still has a lot of air traffic uh, happening. Walk us through some of the trends that we've seen and what you thought just over the course of the week that was uh, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, China does tend to dominate the conversation as one of the two very biggest domestic markets in the world uh, and an interesting story in its own right. Um, you know, we got the data in from uh, from the Omicron crisis, and it's no worse than the, the Delta variant, you know, a couple months of, well, shall we say, ups and downs in traffic, but still doesn't disrupt the long-term uh, recovery story. The trajectory remains the same with a full recovery back to 2023. You know, we've done a few long-range forecasts in aerodynamic, it looks like, however, by the middle of the decade, even though we'll have made more than a full recovery, we'll still have an 11% impairment relative to where we would have been if this whole nightmare hadn't have happened. Now, in terms of China, you've got this very strange situation where, of course, they have an extremely rigid government policy on, on lockdowns. Um, and very few Omicron cases so far, which means it could, uh, hopefully not, but it could be waiting to explode because they have a vaccine that's not particularly effective and Omicron is simply a lot more contagious in any event. So the possibility of, you know, Omicron spreading all over the place, suddenly disrupting the country and disrupting its traffic comeback, it's very real. And of course, China International, that's not a good story at all. Uh, You know, it's only about... 15% 15% of their aviation industry, but still it's important. And it, it just, you know, that their problems there with China turning inward, they predate the pandemic. So it could be that we're in for a comeback to where things were domestically, not seeing that on the international front. And then even after that, we're probably not going to see the same domestic traffic growth rates that we'd become accustomed to because, well, the anti-corruption campaign, the anti-wealth campaign, the basic crackdown on anything that isn't run by the state and anything that's in the private sector. You know, I mean, 
it's not a pretty picture. So I think what's kind of lost in the debate is the fact that the China that's coming back isn't the China that really powered us out of the last few aviation industry downturns. Can I just um, add one thing to uh, sure. Richard's really good point about China? Um, I mean, just to just to put some numbers on this, we we analyze Airbus's uh, deliveries pretty closely, and we try to allocate uh, to di- you know to the specific countries where Airbus delivers aircraft via a leasing uh, business. And if you do that, uh, China has been consistently not only you know clearly Airbus's single top country, but it, it's been somewhere between twenty five and thirty percent of Airbus's entire deliveries over the last decade or so. Uh, it's it's that important. I mean, it really, you know, really the US, Europe uh, pale into insignificance compared to uh, China. So China turning inwards, China uh, having a problem with uh, lockdowns uh, because they haven't, uh, well, they haven't got any, any sort of herd immunity uh, in terms of COVID is very, very bad news. And just so, you know, to, in the interest of being completely balanced, Boeing is exactly the same. The difference is it's very hard to uh, understand where leasing deliveries uh, uh, for uh, for Boeing, go to compared to Airbus. Um, uh, Ron, uh, let me let you take a bite um, at that, and then uh, give you an opportunity to talk about uh, U.S. earnings. Right, CAE reported, Huntington Ingalls reported, Triumph Group uh, reported. Give us sort of a sense. Um, you know, if you want to finish up on the commercial side of the talk, but then also give us a, give us a sense on how uh, some of the last companies reporting in the group uh, in um, their twenty one results uh, had to say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the key with uh, commercial traffic now, and, and I don't think anybody would disagree with this, is is getting international traffic back, right? I mean, um, it's encouraging that you know we can go to the UK uh, if you're if you're vaccinated, you don't have to go through the the testing regime. However, coming back to the US is more difficult than that. Um, and you know, as as we all know, as we said many times, you know, two thirds of global traffic is international traffic, cross border traffic. And that's the real piece that has to come back. I mean, in most markets, we've seen um, meaningful rebounds in domestic traffic. Uh, in the U.S., you know, domestic traffic, depending on the time frame you're looking at, has in some cases done better than it was in 2019. But the piece of traffic that's missing in the U.S. ultimately is the traffic that would be flowing through the system to go international, right? So that's that's the one thing we're waiting for, and and ultimately that's probably just going to be the. The piece that, you know, as we all know, will come back last because it has to deal with you know, international coordination and so on and so forth. And Asia seems to be behind other parts of the world with regard to um, borders and so on and so forth. So, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Yeah, in terms of um, companies that reported this week, um, there was a handful and there will be a, a, a continuing tale uh, of companies. But this week we saw Huntington Ingalls report, um, uh, Transdime reported, Triumph Group reported, uh, CAE reported. And uh, many of the same themes that we've been seeing from, from other companies that are reported were the same. We've seen some softness in, in defense at companies and their defense businesses related to uh, you know, you know, the, the quote unquote COVID slowdown, either having to do with supply chain or the rate at which you know, contracts are, are being awarded. Um, and we, we saw that you know, theme across the group. You know, Transdime saw a bit of that, Triumph Group saw a bit of that. Um, Triumph Group was probably the biggest quote unquote surprise uh, because their their margins looked actually pretty darn good, and, and Triumph is a bit of a, a, a turnaround story. So when you have a turnaround story that seems to be executing the right way, um, you get rewarded for that. And you know, Triumph had a quite good week until Friday, um, when all the Russian news kind of came out. But um, so the market's starting to recognize that there. Um, so you know, broadly, that's where we were. Um, Huntington Ingalls numbers were um, you know more or less kind of in line with what the street was looking for. 
Um, they're implying some pretty strong growth in the services business. We'll see if that plays out. Uh, we tend to take a little more of a conservative view on, on most services businesses in the current environment because they're the most impacted by the CR and, and the velocity of contracts being let and so on and so forth. But um, that's where I think we were on earnings during the week. Of course, uh, the company has talked about its technical services business. Obviously, the Lion deal was very important uh, in that. You're you're a little cooler uh, on on that uh, on that uh, transaction. Um, are you bullish? Uh, are you with analysts' consensus that uh, the CR ends in March and that we go to appropriations, right, so that we have more normalcy? Right. I mean, I know that everybody's got a concern whether or not we have a full year CR, which does affect services contractors worse. But there is this sense that we're sort of turning a corner and, you know, that the House and Senate are, are getting their act together, even though there's there's still a lot of um, p- political gamesmanship going on. Are, are you comfortable that we're going to have like a budget budget soon? Yeah, that, that's my expectation. Right. I mean, I think that card's been forced by what's going on in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, particularly with regard to defense. Uh, I don't think the street, is, that's a consensus on the street right now. I think one of the worries among investors is the CR and the impact and so on and so forth. But, you know, by mid-March, it would seem like you know, it, that's a, a reasonable thing to happen. And of course, that'll be good for defense because of all the disruptions you get with the CR, particularly for services businesses, right? Businesses that tend to have shorter duration backlogs and, you know, contract structures that can be, you know, months to a year, tend to do and get more impacted by a CR than say a shipbuilding business where you know the you know the duration of those contracts is just just much longer. And just on Huntington Ingalls and you know kind of my, my thoughts around the service business, uh, it, I think it's just a trick, a hard trick, a difficult task to manage a business where you have a shipbuilding business with the with the backlogs that they have and the and the the, the duration of those contracts and you throw in that mix a service business where the duration of those contracts is much shorter so you're 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 building hardware with very very long duration and you've got a service business that has very very short duration contracts so it's that can just be a trickier thing to mix a little more difficult not saying they can't do it but it it just throws a little more risk in the mix there is an expectation that Putin is going to invade, right? I mean, that he wouldn't do and go through all this uh, uh, time, uh, you know, although it's it's hard for me to say expense, right? I mean, those troops are in Russian territory. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to think that it's costing him necessarily that much more money for some of these forces who have been moved to to where they are. But ultimately, right, he's making a big show of it. And eventually he may want to, you know, having cut the lemon, squeeze the lemon. I don't know what that analogy means. But anyway, um, do you guys have a sense on what the budget upside increase is? Is this a 5% budget up, uh, increase? Is it something more sustained that could be higher, right? I mean, are, are, are any of you guys looking at this as, okay, this will translate into another how much uh, across the markets that you guys are, are looking at it? You know, whether it's in shipbuilding, right, Sash, uh, great point. Uh, in terms of, you know, uh, anti-armor munitions are popular, artillery rounds are popular, tank rounds, right? I mean, folks are replenishing in a way a lot of the high-intensity warfighting equipment that maybe they were under-investing in, uh, and it's and it's a good uh, good reminder. But it also is a reminder that, I mean, frankly, European militaries do lack some of the capabilities the Russians are massing over there, uh, especially the long-range fires capabilities, which European militaries really are lacking uh, in. I mean, do, do you guys just want to go around the horn what does this mean for everything for armored vehicles to naval investment to air investment? 
and uh, you know, Sash, if you want to start us off, and then we go to Richard, and then to Ron, uh, is is fine by me. Okay, right. I'll start. Nobody's thinking in terms of percentages. Percentages are meaningless when you have a crisis like this that uh, causes countries to break out of their previous, you know, warm, cozy. Uh, uh, you know, preconceptions about life. It's not a percentages thing. The question is, do you know, do budgets go up over a, a period of a number of years? Do they double or not? Um, what are the rules of thumb? The nearer you are to Russia, the more the budgets will go up because uh, you cannot guarantee that anybody will come and rescue you fast enough. So that means the Nordic states, the Baltic states, Eastern Europe, budgets will almost certainly double on a five-year view. Um, the further you are away, and this is sometimes referred to as, uh, you know, the 1500 kilometer, uh, you know, warm, fuzzy duvet, to, and I'm talking about the UK here, but actually also, you know, France, Spain, Portugal, budgets will not go up as much because the military threat just is not as great. Um, and Germany uh, is somewhere in the middle. Um, secondly, priorities and land systems, because land systems uh, have been hollowed out the most after the end of the Cold War. And land systems, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, the, you know, a very large proportion of the installed base is still ex-Russian equipment, which is, uh, how, how I'm not sure how to put this, but you know, just very uncomfortable, uh, poor ergonom ergonomics to use. Um, and so that's why the bigger long-term programs are looking at infantry fighting vehicles. And Rheinmetall um, is talking about this has been the decade of the IFV, uh, which is, okay, they're talking their own book there, but that's a, that's a very interesting point. The further away you are from Russia, the uh, more the focus, and particularly if you're on the Atlantic seaboard, the focus is on naval because it's an anti-submarine warfare uh, focus. Air is well invested in in Europe, relatively. Munitions are not. Um, but, you know, most European nations, particularly Western European nations, have got very, very modern combat aircraft fleets. Um, you can argue that there aren't enough of them, but you know that they have been well invested over the last thirty years in a way that land has not been and ASW has not been. But you know percentages, you know five to eight. That that frankly bugs me. It's the budgets double on a five year view or a seven year view or, or whatever, but they will double. And and by the way, uh, Sash, right? I mean, I didn't have a sense of of something immediate, right? I mean, you have to deal with the wolf that's at your door. But that was the sentiment which I was interested in is, uh, you know, if you were gaming this out, even at this early phase, what does this mean? The concern here in Washington, as was uh, expressed on our Washington panel on Friday, was that actually this may not, especially if Putin sort of amps the heat up to try to get negotiations on things that he wants. Uh, right. Cause everybody to crack, if you will, under the pressure. Right. That everybody gets so focused that avoiding conflict that he gets all of his negotiating uh, priorities. Um, and, and so in that case, the concern is everything goes back to normal and everybody forgets about it. Um, I'm bullshit. one of the people who thinks that's well, complete and utterable. Don't buy that um, one second. Nobody I, over here is saying that. What they are worried about is if the U.S. cracks on this, in which case, you know, people in Europe will really have to spend um, I and 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 I and I take that, Richard. Um, uh, go ahead. Well, I certainly appreciate um, Sash's holistic view of defense. I 
of course, and heavily focused on aviation and aerospace. Uh, so, you know, his comments about naval and ground are, are well taken. Um, I, I tend to think, however, that because of the broader utility of air power, maybe this is a little bit of a hammer in search of a nail moment, but I, I tend to think it's going to still benefit considerably from this. Uh, again, as Sash says, probably hard to put a percentage thing on it, but um, I would imagine that this would accelerate some of the efforts to uh, get back a degree of combat air power sovereignty. Um, you know, I'm waiting for some time now for SCAF to become a Franco-French collaborative venture with Germany effectively removed from it. I think this hastens that day. That plus Dassault's uh, export success. Um, Tempest definitely improved. I, I would be surprised if there weren't uh, some fill-up orders for the current generations of planes, uh, Eurofighter, and in some cases F-35 for European nations. I mean, no matter what happens, air power is useful. But I, I think there also is a bit of a, a you know, damp squib possibility here where the invasion doesn't go so great. Uh, you know, basically, there's some incursion in the eastern part of the Ukraine. Russian forces get a bit of a bloody nose. The whole thing gets resolved and people resume thinking about Russia as a spent force. Uh, you know, it basically, it, it has the same economy as Spain. The only thing is it has nukes and cyber power and that's all. And, you know, when they when if it comes back down to this expectation of, well, all right, that was a worst case scenario and that's the end of it you could easily see things return to exactly as they were. Um, I, I, I have to say that uh, our, our Washington panel and my sentiment based on my reporting and talking to people in Europe is, let's not overreact. Too early to say whether everything goes up. Let's see if we can defuse this, in part because many of the governments do not want to spend more money on uh, defense, ultimately, and they would rather spend that money on other uh, priorities. Uh, so, you know, increased defense spending a lot, do some boutique capability improvements, do capability improvements in the context of your broader modernization. Uh, but it, it, it will, and the more, the farther east, and Sash, to your point, the farther east you go, obviously the more people are talking about, hey, we've got to do a lot of stuff to get uh, sorted out, right? I mean, the Albanian president, excuse me, the Estonian president uh, had uh, thoughtful comments to, to make on cyber, right? And, and cyber vulnerabilities, given uh, how close uh, those nations are. And of course, uh, Estonia is the, is the home of uh, NATO's uh, cyber center. Uh, Ron, let me br bring you into the discussion, uh, right? I mean, as everybody sort of looks at what this, what's this going to mean for, the, for U.S. spending, it looks like the administration may come in with a budget request that's smaller under the anticipation that Congress is going to plus up, as we as we saw last year, what's what's your latest sense, uh, Intel sort of feel um, on on whether this crisis is going to mean a lot more money for defense, and if it is a lot more money for defense, how much more money for defense at this point, right? If you were gaming a number, right in Washington, it goes everything from like sort of seven thirty three to like seven sixty something, right? What where where what what what's your bread box number? Yeah, so we can walk through that real quick and then just have another quick thought on something else related, but kind of unrelated. Uh, you know, we're thinking um, that the, the request from the Biden administration will be essentially flat year on year from where it was last year, but adjusted for inflation. Uh, so pick your bogey for where the U.S. government thinks inflation is going to be. Um, you know, it's somewhere going to be between four and a half and six percent. So let's just uh, round it up to a nice five. So the, you know, the budget request will probably be 5% year on year higher uh, to make it flat in real terms. 
Uh, I would imagine that's where we start. That puts you roughly 740. That's what goes to Congress. And then they start up their markup process in an election year with a lot of tension in both the Pacific and in Eastern Europe. So maybe on the margin, you get a little bit of you know extra boost out of the, the, the politics and geopolitics of all this. So maybe you get that, you know, that 740 number gets another 5%. So that puts you around 780 when it's all said and done. When you get, you know, uh, an enacted law for appropriations uh, for fiscal 23. So that would be my bogey, 780, uh, when it's all said and done. Specifically, um, the, you know, Russian-Ukrainian situation, does it really impact the U.S. spending? I don't think so. Um, could it impact foreign military sales uh, for things? You know, the polls have been, I guess, on the, on the fence to buy some Abrams. Maybe that happens. Uh, you know, there's piranhas going to you know, the Romanians. Maybe you see some, something like that. Maybe we see some incremental F-35 sales as a result of this. So it would be, for me, more in the foreign military sales category than in you know, the U.S. You know, direct domestic sales piece. One thing I scratch my head about, and this is maybe a question for, for Sash, you know, in the investment world, we, we sadly, um, uh, you know, defense, defense has been, you know, earmarked as something that's non-ESG. So if you're a very ESG-focused governments in many European countries, how do they, you know, what do you want to call it, circle the square with spending on defense when it's not a environmentally social thing to do? So I don't know how that impacts European budgets. I mean, it's definitely impacted the European investment community, um, you know, you know, particularly outside the UK and, and Finland, I guess, can, you know, they can invest in defense, but most of continental Europe can't anymore. Um, so I, I don't know what that all means, but you know, I think it's an interesting social question where defense spending kind of falls in the big picture of the European ethic for what is ESG. Sash, you want to take a bite at that? Yeah, I mean, if I can actually, uh, if I can just, first of all, just cover off one of, one of the points you made was, um, what the cost of the Russian deployment or deployments are. My experience is that once you move troops out of their barracks, once you move aircraft away from their home base, your costs go up by hundreds of millions of, pick your currency, uh, you know, every, every week or so. Deploying armed forces is unbelievably expensive. Um, boring things, fuel, spares you know everything breaks down once you move it out of out, out of the barracks um ammunition because the you know the russians are clearly exercising at an incredibly high rate and uh you know to look at the other side of it nato forces are exercising now in some cases at rates they haven't done for 15 20 years or so and that's been one of the things that's that's come through to you know the the ammunition producer the munitions producers the Rheinmetall, so far rheinmetall saab i bet a number of other european companies really surprised on the upside uh, this earning season. So, uh, you know, I disagree with you. Deployment is hugely, uh, and for some companies, hide or countries, hideously expensive I, I, and compared I meant, to just... Completely no, I mean, taken. It's, it's, but for, it's I was talking really, about for really the Russians, not, not for the Western no, side. It's the Russians no, it's incredibly expensive for the Russians. It's incredibly expensive. You move... I mean, they've been moving forces from the Far East, and the Far East in Russia is further away from any other part of the world than any other country has. You know, it makes moving from Mexico to Alaska look a, a really simple deployment. Um, that is, and you know, that's really expensive. Secondly, you know, um, Russia, uh, same economy size as Spain. Yeah, it is, except that all Russia does is produce natural resources, oil, gas, 
it's got none of that tourism stuff that the Spanish do. So it's a super focused cash generative economy. The fact that they choose to spend all this cash on defense and offense at the moment is the problem for, for the Europeans. Third point, ESG. Um, ESG isn't an issue for European governments. European governments spend on defense. Nobody likes spending on defense, but you spend on defense because you have to. It's like an insurance policy, but uh, there's a lot more urgency to it at the moment. Um, but ESG is a becoming a really big issue for some European companies uh, in terms of access to finance. And so, you know, can't get equity uh, investors to invest in some European defense companies, uh, can't get uh, bond investors to uh, invest in European defence companies' bonds, can't necessarily get banks to lend to some European defence companies. And one of the ways that this is going to have to be solved, and, and European companies are starting to raise very, very big flags about this now, is at a political level, where European governments just say, you know, defence is, uh, well, it may not be ESG compliant, but it's social, certainly a social good. And if you know, so, European governments are going to have to stand behind their defence companies, because otherwise they'll lose them. It's as simple as that. So it's a real issue, but it's not stopping European defence spending. It's stopping the defence companies accessing capital. I am with you. I know there is cost associated with it. I'm just saying an authoritarian nation with effectively a command economy uh, and companies that are basically state companies, the, 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 the dynamic is very, very different. You're not buying those munitions from a company that's going to be charging you, uh, you know, whether it's 6%, 7%, 10% uh, on those weapons in terms of margin. Um, it, it is, and, and he has them to uh, use them, um, right? He is not play, paying freight charges with a carrier uh, and line charges and other things that, that somebody else would. That, that was kind of my point is it's easier for him to sustain this pace and this cost than it would be for folks in the West to do it because they're, they've got to you know, mobilize everybody from BAE systems to Talas to Rheinmetall and everybody else. Uh, who are you know commercial companies uh, at at the at the end of the day? Um, let me bring you in, uh, Richard. If there's anything you want to add to this, because we we've got uh, a, a, a lot more terrain to cover, because I do want to get your guys' take on uh, the Rafal uh, Indonesia order, the weird thing we saw with the State Department and the F-15, and of course uh, PNAA uh, Pacific Northwest Aerospace uh, Association uh, conference where uh, Ron. Uh, you spoke, Richard, you spoke, and our mutual friend and your partner, uh, uh, Kevin, uh, spoke uh, as well. Uh, and so wanna, uh, Kevin Michaels uh, spoke as well and want to sort of get a sense on what, what the takeaways were. Sadly, I couldn't join you guys. But Richard, sort of uh, put a punctuation mark on this before we move on. Sure. Maybe actually this is a good time to sort of segue. You know, I mean, I, I think it's important to note that we're watching rearmament happen around the world. You know, it, it it it's obviously been a trend in, in Asia because of every other country looking in the region, looking at China and saying, uh oh, and now it's starting to happen in Europe. And there's no better illustration of this than Indonesia and the combat aircraft market, because for many years they simply weren't a market. You know, their economy grew. They became one of the great regional economic powers. Um, you know, especially in the 90s, but to this day. And yet, you know, the last time they purchased new Western fighter jets was the 1980s when they purchased the, a dozen F-16s. Since then, it's just been hand-me-downs, a few Russian planes, a few Korean planes. And now all of a sudden, they seem to be getting serious about spending money on defense. And of course, there's just one big driver. So all of this, you know, frankly, I, I, I think it may not be a repeat of the 1930s with a couple of bad actors menacing everybody else and everybody else. Uh, trying to stay together, but you know, people are treating it that way. 
And in the 1930s, there wasn't much rearmament. Uh, the Western democracies and other countries around the world paid for that dearly. This time, it looks like they are, in fact, rearming pretty much across the board. And that, of course, led to the news flow about the Indonesian combat aircraft market this week. Um, yeah. One thing that's kind of noteworthy is that so far, I believe the contract is just for six aircraft, talk of up to 30-something more Rafales, talk of maybe F-15s, and of course, their program partners in the KF-21 Korean Indigenous Fighter Program, too. So in other words, there could be a lot more upside. Well, uh, then, okay, you, you've started us off what's more to be said about the Rafale order uh, and how it changes the competitive uh, dynamic. Uh, Say again. Tums. (laughs) Yes. Well, I was going to, I was going to come to you in a moment, Sash, but I was going to let Richard finish that thought. uh, And then, uh, and then throw the F-15 notification, uh, right? Because that's aimed at the U S sort of throwing a flag in uh, on that competition and trying to get uh, clearly Jakarta to consider the F-15, right. And sort of what, that meant given when it happened because clearly Indonesians looked at the Rafale as a better answer than the SU-35. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear uh, that Rafale is being positioned brilliantly as the perfect third-way fighter. You know, first way, of course, being, you know, your own indigenous thing. The second way being U.S. alliance or Western alliance system F-35, you know, F-16s back in the day. And for, for a lot of countries, especially India, especially Egypt, especially uh, Qatar, and, uh, and especially the UAE, they want a backup plan. They want a way to make sure they will not be cut off uh, by support contract cutoffs in the event of a political kerfluffle. The Rafale is brilliantly positioned. The French are never going to cut you off under no circumstances, but they're not the Russians. They're not the fourth way, as it were. Uh, you know, it, if they'd bought the Su-35, that would have been a clear alignment with other people, you know, and what are the ramifications of that? Well, you know, the unspoken threat in Indonesia to a certain extent is China. So, you know, great, you're getting Su-35s. The Chinese know all about them. You don't want to do that. It's just dumb. Uh, and of course, you don't want to completely reject uh, your strategic relationships with the U.S. and other regional powers. You don't want to follow Australia, Japan, the Quad Nations, and anyone else who's in the U.S. operating system, you know, F-35 customers and whatever else. But, you know, and you want to stake out a certain degree of independence and, and a backup plan in the event of a, you know, political disagreement with the U.S., but you don't want to leave those relationships behind either. And for all of that, geopolitically, Rafael could not be better positioned and given those other countries they're scoring, and there'll be plenty more and plenty more follow-on orders. I think in terms of dollars, if not in ship sets, this might be France's most successful combat aircraft yet. And anything you want to say about the F-15 or nothing to say about the F-15 from your perspective? You know, strategically, the F-15 can't be beat for the region in terms of range and payload, which of course is why Singapore got it. Uh, You know, it's really superb. However, the idea that this country should go uh, Indonesia should go from a collection of hand-me-down F-16s and semi-functional Sukhoi uh, planes to Rafales plus the world's most capable heavyweight twin-engine combat aircraft. And that, 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 but from a budget standpoint, operational standpoint, that sounds completely insane. Uh, so I'd say no, but you can't roll it out given the scope of rearmament in the region. 
there you go, everybody. Completely insane for everybody uh, in uh, Foggy Bottom or or in St. St. Louis. Go ahead, uh, Sash, and then uh, just want to go to to you, Ron. If I can, if I just quickly clarify it, I don't mean it would be an insane choice just from the standpoint of budget, bed down costs, and uh, of course, what it takes to get up and running with uh, that level of sophistication. And that just doesn't seem like a, a, a reasonable scenario. Indeed. Thank you very much for the clarification. Everybody can be breathe a deep uh, sigh of relief. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, I think the F-15 export authorization came about two and a half years too late, actually. Um, mm. this, this is an incredibly important uh, export uh, contract for Rafale. Um, I'm just to look at the numbers. In the last 18 months, Dasso's got orders, right? Over 120 Rafales um, from uh, now uh, six uh, sorry, f- uh, five countries. Um, what's interesting about that, of those countries, two are brand new Dassault customers. So these are, these are you know, conquests, breakthroughs, which they've never had before. Uh, previous, you know, most of the other, all, all the other customers have been previous customers operating the Mirage 2000 or something even older. Um, and they've done a very good job of converting historic customers into Rafale customers. But now they're getting conquests. And this should worry every other fighter manufacturer, but particularly should worry the, the two other European manufacturers, Eurofighter, uh, BA, uh, Airbus, uh, uh, and Leonardo. And it should uh, worry Saab with Griffin because uh, Dassault is on a real roll now. I personally think Dassault and France are almost synonymous in this. Very, very hard to say it's Dassault won it. Um, it's really, it's Dassault France that, uh, that has won this. Um, and as well as the fact that you know this is this has now become an export terms the most successful European fighter aircraft of its generation, uh, and I would not have thought they would have done that four years ago. This was uh, the uh, combat aircraft that had you know no exports, no uh, no friends. It was a French only program. Boy, they've turned that around. Um, but the big geopolitical uh, issue here now is that this is concentrating French minds on whether they need the Germans in SCAF or not, or whether SCAF should become a Franco-French program, just like every other uh, French fighter aircraft program has been. And the question that I have had from a number of French industrialists in the last couple of weeks, and it's a sort of rhetorical question, is basically, if this was SCAF, I, if, uh, if this was a, an export of SCAF uh, to Indonesia, would the Germans even let us sign the export contract? Because what they're worried about is that if you have a, a SCAF FCAS collaborative program with Germany, the Germans will veto almost every single customer uh, in the export markets that the French would like to sell to. I think the French are um, basically building up to, to breaking SCAF because I think they think they can do it alone. They've got the installed base for Rafale. I think Rafale is going to win more export customers. Uh, Germany is negotiating the, the SCAF FCAS deal on the basis of you know, equality, I, you know, we are two equal countries, we are two equal industries. And the French are saying, you know, countries may be broadly the same size and economy, but industry is not, we should lead SCAF. And frankly, we don't need you, but you need us. It's, it's astonishing to see how, how the tensions that are building in SCAF, I don't think will last a year. Um, do you think Tempest survives though, especially as the U.S. gears up on, right? I mean, how and how and what does Tempest look like as the United States gears up NGAD and the likelihood that it would offer NGAD cooperation to its closest allies and partners and certainly the U.K. 
Yeah, and that's what, that and, and that's what I mean. Who worries most about that? Saab probably because they would lose position on a big uh, combat aircraft program. But you know, BA and Leonardo that would that would kill them as combat aircraft producers. That would be devastating. Uh, and I think that the Royal Air Force, some people in the Royal Air Force, would love to become uh, or would love to buy Angad. Um, the Italians will sort of find a way, but that you know that that would destroy a big. Ch- I mean, that would make the French the European combat aircraft industry. Period. That uh, would and- be. So it would be an astonishing win for the US, but it would be an astonishing win for France as well. Um, I, I I think that the Italians would be particularly disquieted by that because even though Italy is an important member of the F-35 team, right? Talk to anybody who's passionate about Italian aviation. There is dismay at that, at the potential, uh, the prospect of uh, the, the, the demise or becoming a build-to-print contractor um, is, uh, is, is really unbearable, as, as, you, as everybody on this call knows. Uh, for for some Italian industry and and there is a lot of passion at Saab as well uh, for the capabilities of what is a, a great combat aircraft company. Uh, Ron, uh, any any uh, thoughts on this before we quickly go uh, and get a roundup uh, on PNAA? So why don't you uh, finish up thoughts on this and then let us know what the key takeaways were from uh, the conversation uh, up there in uh, sunny Seattle uh, last week. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't have a heck of a lot to add. I mean, I agree with Richard. I mean, it seems like going from used F-16s to uh, an F-15X is is quite a jump, right? But um, so yeah, I don't have a heck of a lot to add. But other than that, um, and, and then on, on PNAA, I mean, it was, a, I think it was a very successful conference, right? You know, PNAA uh, is, uh, represents the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance. Uh, there was a 21st annual conference. Um, and it, it, it's the, you know, the uh, industry advocacy group in, in the Pacific Northwest, for those who don't know. Uh, very successful conference, well attended, some interesting pres- you know, presentations, a lot of industry talk. I mean, the things that really jumped out at me was, one, you have a supply base that's very frustrated um, in terms of everything from the max being behind schedule in terms of when deliveries are happening and what's going on on the on the production line, what we're hearing from most suppliers is Boeing's producing around 20 per month, uh, which is behind where people thought they would be. On 787, they're hearing nothing. Um, so that, of course, is frustrating to anybody that's involved with that program. On 777X, I think the expectation is its certification is going to fall into 2024. Um, an interesting you know, thing that I picked up up there that I didn't fully appreciate before was the clock is ticking on the 737 MAX 10 certification. Uh, under FAA FAR Part 25 rules, you have five years to certify an airplane or the certification basis changes. Uh, that's a lot of words to say. All the things that happened in those five years that you would have, that would change in certification and upgrades or whatever in terms of what you have to do in, in, in the process. If you don't do it in those five years, all of a sudden you've got to take into account everything that changed. Um, so that, that that's a complication that if they don't get the airplane done by the end of the year, uh, it might take a little longer to do. So um, there was some discussion of a new jet bubbling up. Maybe I'll leave that to Richard to talk about. Um, and maybe we've seen a bottom in R&D spending, but who knows? Uh, and, and and then there was, you know, kind of this overriding discussion. I mean, you know, what would an aviation conference be today if you didn't talk about carbon emissions and, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, how do we get to, you know, zero, you know, zero net emissions by 2050, so on and so forth. A lot of talk of hydrogen, electric, this, that, the other thing, um, you know, not a lot of big surprises there. I think, you know, ultimately there was uh, a lot of pessimists on hydrogen, myself included, um, although there was discussion uh, around it. So um, why don't I leave it there? 
Uh, Richard, um, give, give us your sense, some of the messaging, what were the interesting elements of uh, what you picked up um, out there uh, at the conference? And did Boeing, um, you know, Boeing did not participate uh, formally uh, out there, but what you picked up from the conversations you had uh, about what the company is thinking, right? Because as we've discussed on this program, the WISC deal um, left a lot of people scratching their heads. Yeah. First of all, I agree completely with Ron that it was a very successful conference. You know, I mean, it was um, it had been a couple of years, of course, since it was in person and uh, could get something uh, I would reckon 60 percent of the peak levels with uh, pretty much no international buy in just purely U.S. because of travel restrictions and, and corporate reluctance, whatever. I thought that was a huge success. And it was a lot of people eager to get together and talk about the industry. And uh, that did feel great. Yeah, there was, I agree again with Ron, it was just uh, a lot of head scratching about Boeing across the board. News flow on 787, a lot of frustration. Why can't they get their act together? The one consistent theme, which relates to all of this and affects all contractors is uh, workforce. And there was a great deal of, gee, what do we do? You know, we're subject to being kind of the last in line to hire because the commercial part the commercial part of the industry is one of the last features of the economy to really recover from you know what the economy was hit with back in 2020 so of course being the last to hire people you're going to pay a relatively high price and especially when so many workers have decided that uh, you know defense new space you know we're something exciting is uh, or Amazon or Facebook, you know, is a better place to go. You kept, you hear kept hearing anecdotes about base pay at Amazon basically having doubled, you know, and, uh, and so why not go and work there if you're an engineer? Um, people were concerned about that. They were concerned that if Boeing did get going with another jet, um, how hard would it be for them to hire engineers against that trend? How hard would it be for the suppliers to do the same? So a great deal of consternation, but there was also, you know, as, as a, group of folks who were divided, who were united in, in getting you know, on regional, or basically uniting on regional themes in order to provide for the betterment of the, the industry, you know, there was a kind of determination. Okay, if Boeing doesn't do it, then we're going to diversify our portfolios. We're going to attract people from abroad to set up plants here. We have talent, and that's hugely important given those uh, those talent headwinds that everyone is seeing. We have a minute left, Sasha. You got the last word because instead of talking about um, Canadian truckers blocking roads, let's talk about something more important than it involves the word Ottawa uh, and does so. Yeah, um, there's quite a lot of talk going around at the moment that France is trying to get back into the Canadian fighter contract. You remember that Rafale uh, was excluded from the contract, whoa, two, two and a half years ago, partly for some bizarre reason, because uh, apparently they didn't submit their um uh, their, their proposals in time. They were they were clearly not terribly focused on Canada uh, at that time. Have a look at the um, uh, the the, the Elysee Palace, and indeed all, um, in in uh, in France. But pretty much the whole of the French government is really good on Twitter. So if you look at what they talk about and what they report, the Elysee has had um, I think six uh, video conferences uh, with uh, Trudeau in Canada in the in the last you know month and a half or so. Um, Macron has been on every single one. Uh, Yves Le Drian, the French uh, foreign minister, who's probably the single best seller of French defence equipment, has been on most of them. Florence Parley, the French defence minister, has been on them. Now, yeah, there's lots to talk to Canada about uh, in terms of you know, Ukraine and, and defence and so forth. But uh, what I'm hearing is that the French are trying to reopen the uh, or, or get a, a new opening back into the 
uh, Canadian fighter contract. At the moment, it's a the shortlist between the F-35 and Saab's Gripen. Um, that doesn't look to me to be a terribly fair fight, let's be honest. Uh, but put, put Rafale in there as well, and that really sort of, that gives the Canadians a ton of options, and uh, it makes things very, very complex for the other two players. My two friends. Um, does uh, very quickly to Ron and and, and Richard, um, Canada has been part of the F-35 program since its inception. Is there any reasonable chance that the British, excuse me, that the Canadians go with any other airplane than the F-35 ultimately? I'm going to vote no, uh, just because um, for all the reasons you just highlighted, they've been part of F-35 from the start and Griebin isn't terribly likely. And Rafael, well, that would be, you know, that that's for countries that aren't in the U.S. operating system 100%, and Canada very definitely is. However, reconsidering Rafael would be a nice boost to the Rafael program. It would make them look like serious global, even more serious global players. And, of course, it would help the Canadians negotiate with the F-35 people. So yeah, I think it serves people's interests. Um, and, and uh, right, NORAD. Uh, obviously, is one of the world's most in, in, important binational uh, commands, and the deputy is a is a Canadian. Uh, Ron, last thoughts before we part. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with both you guys. I mean, it, 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 I don't know why they really, in the end, want to do it, other than um, having a stalking horse in the competition for negotiation purposes. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great week, and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Margo. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Margo. It's been a really good discussion. Yeah, really enjoyed that a lot, Bogo. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.